Hello and welcome to Politics in the Pulpit. This is a lecturing-based preaching resource designed to ask that provocative question of whether, um, and if so, how politics should appear in our preaching each week. My name is Beth Alison Glenny. I'm the Baptist Union of Great Britain's Public Issues Enabler, and I'm part of the Ecumenical Joint Public Issues team. Each week, I'm joined by a guest from a different place or space on the preaching or political landscape. And today, I'm very pleased to introduce the Reverend Ali Bolton. She's a Baptist pioneer ambassador and a new housing hub director. She's a lecturer at CMS and she's been part of the Archbishop's Commission on Housing, Church and Community. Just, just to name a few of the feathers to your bow there. Um, strings to your bow, feathers to your arrow. Not quite sure how that particular metaphor works, but there we go. Ali, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's really lovely to have you. Um, I always start by saying to people, politics in the pulpit. As a friend, what does that mean to you? Is that something you agree with? What's, what does that mean for your context? Yeah, I guess it's words. I mean, the word pulpit we wouldn't really use. I'm in a pioneering context. Don't have a pulpit. Don't don't really preach. Um, so the concept of being invited to come and speak about pol politics in the pulpit is an interesting one for me. However. For me, the pulpit is a metaphor in our community. So I'm on a new housing estate where we've been for about the last 12 years. And so for me, what it means to preach and to be in the pulpit, as well as sharing with those who gather, and we do have a, a church gathering that's emerged here, um, where we, I guess I talk rather than preach. Um, we're really about also what does it mean to preach out into our community? What does that look like? How do we hear what God is saying? What's the word from God this week, not just for those who gather, but for the whole community. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's where I'm coming from a little bit. Well, that sounds a bit like preaching. Um, what's the format look like? And how does that like, practically happen in, in your specific, I realise it's not for every pioneering context, but your specific one. So I guess in our specific one, it is about thinking really practically what does it look like to embody the word that God has given to us and some of those are things that he's given words he's given to us for a long time like our DNA things that we really feel called to like um, laying down our lives for this community for instance so I'm not going out and preaching that on the street corner and going you know if I want to be a disciple of Jesus take up your cross lay down your selfish ways and follow me but we're seeking to embody that in quite an intentional way um, to talk about it we're invited uh so there's kind of things like that and then there's also times where there's been maybe a more specific word where we felt like god really wants us to bring a message of say hope to our community this week that's the thing that god is speaking to us about and so um we would think well what what how, what what does that look like embodied in our community i perhaps we might come on to it actually because one of the some of the examples will come out of the gospel reading for today um <clears throat> excuse me, uh, say about food and us feeling like God was talking to us about manna mm. and that he would provide shoot food for us to share with our community. And mm. so that's been the word that we've received. But then we would begin to share that out, not necessarily initially by talking about manna, but by talking about the fact that we believe that God is providing this, that these things have come, you know, from God, of listening to God about who we should be giving food to. So it's quite... Yeah, so that's what it looks like out in the community. And yeah, when we gather, it, it looks like talking to one another about whatever the passages of the Bible that, you know, that we're looking at. Um, it's 
not very neat. <laughs> no, it's not very easy to, to explain. And perhaps some of it will come out as we unpack the passages. I'll be talking about how I would embody that yeah. within that, or how I would preach it within our community. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to that because I think that's really interesting for those of us who are in more inherited church models to, to hear. Um, I, I wonder if from your context, if there are particular justice or social justice issues that you kind of think that as our preachers who might be preaching in quite inherited churches or might be in pioneering context, quite a variety, I think, um, as, as they're coming to prepare this week, what, what they should be, you know, is there something that you can hear from your perspective that you'd like them to hear? Yeah, well, I guess for me, one of my key kind of visions and passions is around new housing. We're in a housing crisis. We need new housing. Um, and so what does that mean to respond as a disciple of Jesus to that political mm. issue? And part of the, the, the political response from the government is to be building 300,000 houses each year every year within this country for the foreseeable future. They've taken the end date off of that. Um, and so for me, therefore it's, and so what is that? What's the spiritual response to that? Um, and I'm not so much involved in the bit of the housing crisis where, uh, where I'm building housing. So some churches are really responding in that way. They've got land and they've got resources and they're going, let's, let's actually build houses and that's wonderful. I don't have those kind of resources. I don't have a church or any land or any money. But what I do have is a voice to try and speak into, can we be a prophetic voice of welcome to our new housing estates? To every new housing estate, there is the equal and opposite force of the protest group. The protest group, they're in force everywhere. And lots of people from our churches are part of protest groups against new housing and new housing areas. And some of that I do understand but I also think we also need to get over ourselves a bit <laughs> we need new housing and we need to be able to welcome people into our communities and those who are least welcome which is those joining into social housing or um, refugees or asylum seekers they are the least wanted we need to be a voice going no we want a greater number of, of social housing and affordable housing in these in these areas against the protest groups who's saying oh let's have this you know the smallest number we can possibly have and we need to be there in these places going welcome and we don't mind that we've lost our view or our village has grown or we're losing a bit of green space yeah i understand the the ecology and all of that but these, these are also people who need to be welcomed so what does it mean for us to be a prophetic voice of welcome and what does it mean for us to share god's love with every new housing area mm. I've, I've been in two contexts where there's been new housing and um and it's really interesting because one was a very a very deprived context, very uh, multicultural, where, you know, would be exactly the people who couldn't, you know, the, the, the people who are feeling that thin end of the wedge of not being able to afford uh, to rent anywhere and, and it just being increasingly a crisis on a very personal, you know, I am going to be evicted next week. I've got nowhere mm -hmm. to go level. Yeah. Um, and so when then the developers turn up and build this huge, big, fancy block of flats, literally overshadowing the church building, they just watch themselves being priced out of their own homes. And and that's the that's then the challenge. So you've got a kind of real challenge of like, actually, it's not the social housing. They, they would welcome social housing was the fact that they, they, they wouldn't be able to afford a one bedroom flat and they're a family of six. And it's just this kind of 
stress factor of, and then well if this big gentrification happens then where else are we going to go and what else can we do and how we've been here as this community for the last 70 years and now we can't afford to be here any longer so I watched that one and then I've watched a really different kind of community it's been more rural not necessarily always more affluent but often more affluent um, and probably more middle class doing the opposite conversation about oh well who's that going to be meaning that our kids go to school with and um, all of that kind of conversation it's really interesting kind of watching the two different communities of very different starting places having a very different response to kind of a very similar developer actually doing some quite similar things uh, but kind of trying to work out how they respond to that with grace being a completely different conversation depending on which power spectrum they were on to begin with yeah and part of that for me is in the first situation you spoke about is us as Christians speaking up and saying and holding developers and councils to account and saying how many affordable houses are here particularly mm. how many general rent properties are there um, mm. because generally developers think they'll be more popular if they if they you know don't put a huge number of of general rent properties but if there's a big voice saying this is what we want mm. then we can speak into that and as local people we have a legal you know, right to be consulted and to speak in. And I think as well that sometimes, I mean, people look at the estate I'm on and think it's rich because it's new housing. You know, new new looks rich and often pioneers and people think, oh, well, we don't really need to engage there because they must have everything if they can afford to live there. But actually 30% of the bit that I live in is um, high priority social housing. So that's people with significant additional needs. 30% of the people who moved in we're homeless we've got people who have been have rehoused because of domestic violence and mental health issues and and so also we can kind of think we can get the wrong impression sometimes by looking at new housing and thinking oh it's all rich people mm. and then I find it interesting that even with you know within the whole spectrum of housing we're journeying with all sorts of people in all sorts of needs that aren't necessarily financial across the whole you know the whole spectrum of housing and also journeying with people who are well off and don't actually have any particular needs it's great journeying with those people and having a conversation around what does it look like to be one community one society and recognize that life is not like this for everybody so I think you know I think we have a really powerful voice into these places and I I feel like it's a Kairos moment this is this is a a one-time opportunity to be right into these new communities and to kind of dig a blessing into the sort of the soil as it were these things being built up and to help see God's kingdom values be right into the ethos of the community we are a community who loves who loves one another we are a community who share we are a community who doesn't discriminate against people on the basis of the the type of housing they're in and we haven't got that all right, but what we have seen by being here since the beginning is something of that ethos creeping out uh, in various kind of ways. And so just think, you know, we need to, to keep on keeping on speaking up and being that prophetic voice in whatever way we can. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we always ask my JPIC colleagues for a little roundup of the news, and it's um it's been quite a news week this week <laughs> because it's uh we're recording on Monday. This goes out on a Tuesday, but it's you know Freedom Day, and um 
and it's a bit of a it's an interesting one uh, for, for the news and that's obviously dominating um all of that uh but there are some other things going on so i'm just going to alert us to that because i think um the news will have evolved by sunday but um just to keep people in on it um the nationality and borders bill is in parliament this week which makes the asylum system much more obstructive amongst other things it's having its second reading in the commons uh, today on Monday, uh, after which it will go to committee stage for scrutiny and amendments. And JPIT are holding an open meeting about campaigning, um, uh, about campaigning response on this on Thursday evening. So everyone's welcome to that. And um, the details are on our website as well as a briefing about it. Um, racial justice. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot in the news about that this week after the Euros. And um, you'll have, um, but but I think um, as well as being aware of it, if you want um, another thought on it, uh, we've got a really good uh, blog on it on the JPIT site written by Rodney about, about how to respond to that, which is really helpful. So alert people to that. Um, international development. Um, Commons voted to approve the cut last week, which uh, with much um, less rebellion than at one point was expected. But um, it so it's a, approved a temporary cut in to in the 0.7 percent target um but yeah it's it's the tr the conditions which are needed to restore it to to 0.7 percent have only been met one year in the last 20 years as well so um that's a lot um on friday it's 100 days ecological to go on and elsewhere in the world there's lots of protests and rioting in south africa which have led to several deaths there's been um, another school kidnapping in nigeria of several young students flooding in germany um and record heat in the states um so climate change very much in the forefront of our minds as we uh, run up to cop 26 um and in jpit news uh my job in fact is currently close about to close for applications um on thursday so if this is the sort of thing that you're really excited about and you think you'd like to do it nationally as well as locally, um, the details are on uh, the JPIT website and on the Baptist Union of Great Britain's website. So look up public issues and you will. So there's a little hint to some news we might be sharing next week about the future. So um, we've talked about the news, uh, have our metaphorical newspapers open in one hand, and now we open our Bibles um, and we look at our readings, which are from John 6, 1 to 21. 2 Samuel 11 and Ephesians 3, um, so which is the, um, so we've got uh, David committing adultery with Bathsheba, we've got the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water and a prayer for the Ephesians as the kind of the story content of those. Um, Ali, I, I always ask people, where, where would you start? Um, so for you, where, where would you begin with these readings? Is there a particular one that jumps out for you or is there a particular kind of theme that you think dominates? How's it work? Yeah, well, interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I always start by thinking what, you know, what is God saying specifically to me and to us through these readings? And I've found all of, you know, I've been absolutely immersed in all of them and just found them very, very rich. And I said, I thought in my mind I would go first of all to the gospel but actually just having reflected as we speak about the news roundup that you've done I think I am actually going to start by reflecting on the Ephesians one and I think perhaps if you say is there a theme that goes across the three perhaps this Ephesian passage sets a bit of a theme in some ways I have less to reflect on about it 
but I think it maybe gives us an introduction and a way in, a lens through which to see the other two readings. So in this one particularly, I think that phrase rooted in love is absolutely essential. Those things that you've just expressed, whether it's Freedom Day, whether it's the, you know, the racial difficulties, whether it's the, the giving an international aid or, you know, a lot of those things. It's where are we as disciples of Jesus rooted in love? What does that look like on the ground in my community, in your community? If we're talking about kind of preaching, preaching in our, in our communities, what does it mean for us to be rooted in love? Um, that's really central stuff here we've got an intern at the moment and her reflection on our community was in the early days where she said oh it's it's a love first ask questions later community and I thought oh I was a bit humbling so I don't know if we are really completely that but thinking about how do we embody that that kind of love within our mm -hmm. communities and we've got in here this kind of paradox within the passage where it says that we will know his love, so we'll know his love that surpasses knowledge. So how do we even get our head around that? That we'll know something that is completely unknowable. And for mm -hmm. me, I've been kind of thinking about what does that, how is then this unpacked in this passage? Can I, in my community, preach and help people to know a love that is unknowable? And for me, therefore, that goes beyond speaking about it. It goes beyond an intellectual understanding, which we try and get to into a place of, of experience and encounter where people experience and encounter our love god's love before they even begin to understand something of the theological mm. nature of it we actually unpacked this passage uh in our little gathering and our church gathering that we have and we unpacked it intergenerationally and we we talked about that this love that paul is describing here the height, the width, the depth, the, the all of the things, all of the dimensions, that this is a 3D kind of a love. And uh, one of our one of our kids is really good at drawing 3D shapes and he drew a 2D shape for us and a 3D shape. And we wondered about what the difference was in that and that this 2D shape is something that we could switch on for a Sunday. We could We could probably do some of this love and step into God's love like that. But our 3D love, means this is in all aspects of life upwards to god outwards to our communities you know the whole the whole thing and so this sort of you know blew our mind a bit and uh yeah so this there's lots more i could say about this we unpacked it thinking about a swimming a swimming pool how a lot of kids first learn the word width through a swimming pool and length and that how width seems a long way until you go to a length and then what about then if you swim in the sea you know, mm. and begin to understand. So I think there's something, there's loads and loads more I could unpack in that, but I think there's something about three-dimensional love, which then informs both of these other passages. Where is that love being seen in here? Oh, and just that Paul writes that this is to every family on heaven on earth, that God has created all people, Christian, non-Christian, so this is not just a word for those who gather with us. But as a word for all people. Mm. 
I think, um, so kind of looking at it from several th thoughts, um, I'm interested in the idea that it's rooted, that the language, the image is rooting. And I think it's a very ecological image being rooted and established. Like we, if you have a, a garden that has established plants, getting them out again is really hard work. And the roots hold the soil together, don't they? They, they, they have that their capacity there to, you know, they stop flooding happening, they stop other things happening because they, they hold soil together and taking out those trees or out those roots, like, um, potentially causes like a lot of damage to infrastructure in a way that we perhaps wouldn't ever think about. Um, so I think it's something about the idea that um, we're kind of, you know, that we're rooted and established in God is a really ecological image that we could do something with. Um, and I think that perhaps is interesting. I'm also struck by the constant conversation around power. So there's power here as well as love, isn't there? It's it's God's power. Um, and, and it's interesting that that kind of, you know, it's, you know, households households were everything, everything in this Greco-Roman society. And here we have power not being about the power of your patriarch, but the power of God as patriarch. And what does that mean? Now, as a, as a feminist now, I find like, oh, you know, how comfortable am I with the idea that it's God's fatherly name that's at the head of every family? <laughs> but um, then I think what it's trying to say is actually completely different. And, and especially if we come in a minute to... Um, David, you know, thinking of David as a patriarch and the contrast then of what does it mean to have God as patriarch? Actually, this this is the sort of, you know, this is the figure who actually is the source of all power. It might not look like it in your own household. It might not look like it, but this is the God who is ultimately, um, you know, you get your name from, not not this other space. So I think that's interesting. Um, they're kind of the two things I kind of drew out. Um, yeah. Um, should we mention? Should we go to David, seeing as I've just brought him up? <laughs> sure, yeah. Just shall we go to do with uh, the gospel? But let's have a look at David. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, so David the Bathsheba, and I, 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 I read a few commentaries, and then I got quite cross, and I had to put the commentaries away. Oh. Because the commentaries kept saying, well, Bathsheba, when Bathsheba, she's the culprit too. And in fact, one of them literally says, the culprits receive their reward. And it was like, ooh, ooh, ooh did Bathsheba have any say in any of this? And I want to say no. No, she didn't, actually. Something happened to Bathsheba, didn't she? And I think we need to read that as um, an event of sexual violence in her life that fundamentally destroyed her family. And I think if you read it in any other way, you've missed something, partly because I think you're missing the text, um, because I think it's interesting that she's described both as uh, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite at the first bit before David does anything to her. And then her identity is completely stripped away by the end. So by the end, she's just refined, um, and we don't have it. The but verse 26, it just describes her as Uriah's wife. She lost, she loses her name. She doesn't have a name anymore. By the time, by the time David has taken her over, like she doesn't have her own identity. And I think it's, I think that's really telling. So I think, um, I would want to say there's something here in the text that's telling us about her loss of identity that happens as David uses her in the in these ways. So that's one of my, one I of my big And also that she's called, even in this passage, like obviously you've gone a bit further on, but even within this passage, she's often referred to as the woman. Um, but I would agree that I don't think there's any textual evidence to suggest that Bathsheba is at fault here. And I think 
that within our patriarchal society, we've been taught to read this text through the eyes of David. And David clearly was a man after God's own heart. So how can he really be at fault here? So clearly somebody must have tempted him and brought him in and made him do this. And I agree. I also read things that talked about Bathsheba as the adulteress and she, should, she shouldn't have been bathing out there, you know, where she was and, and all of that. And I don't see any textual evidence to support any of that. What we do mm -hmm. see is that is David, the king, who had been leading his troops out into battle, but has now passed that on. Um, he's then remaining in Jerusalem resting and it just feels like he needs a bit of excitement in his life and off he goes you know he's not really a man who rests how, how is he using that that energy and that kind of makes me think how do I use my energy if I'm not you know he could have been using his energy and his power and his influence in so many ways this is a story of a man who has huge power and huge influence and he chooses to use it in this way and like you say right at the beginning she's described uh, there is a whole identity thing, but and there's also the thing that David is in never in any doubt that this is Bathsheba, and she is she is married. You know that's that. It's not like he makes a mistake or gets confused or anything like. He knows that, and this is a distinct yeah. and definite choice. Yeah, that he and, makes, and the language is quite. It's quite graphic in the Hebrew. It, like yeah. the phrase is, he went into her. Like it, yeah. yeah it's not like and we have it. Like he lay with her. Like oh, it's yeah. like cozy and next to each other, and they have a snog on the sofa. Like that is not what happens here. Right. Um, and then, um, and the and the other stuff. I mean, there's this constant conversation about where she was in Bathy because the whole point is that she was purifying herself. Yeah. Period. So it's definitely this is not some manipulation that she's pulling to say. I'm now impregnated by you and you better kill off my husband. The, the point is, no, no, no. She was, you know, yeah. she was, that, you know, that the, there was no way she's manipulating the situation. This is not um, Uriah's child at all. It couldn't be because this is where she was in her cycle. So stuff yeah. there that, like, I think is quite key as well. And um, also that she was doing the right thing as well. Within the the law of the time, yeah. she was she was doing the right thing. David was not. She was. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where are people finding this within the text that she is somehow at fault here? I, I don't know. No. It seems to be imposed upon the story. And I agree, the language, you know, it's very, uh, Brueggemann, I think, was saying that the verbs are all kind of, so referring to David, he sent, he took, he lay, you know, and then it's very passive with her. She returned, she conceived. You know, mm -hmm. it's very... The text, I think, is is very clear. And so, how do we how do we deal with this when David is such a key figure within our you know within our faith and within our you know we read the Psalms, we engage in them, we 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 speak of David as a man after God's own heart. How I, you know? I, I think we have to deal with him as the whole. I think I think we have to. I think we have to say you can be this and also be this because I think that's where the church actually gets this wrong. I think if we don't own that, actually, people are flawed in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of different ways in their whole selves. Um, and so sometimes you will get people who are 
brilliant and holy and leadershipy in all sorts of ways, but they will have these other dimensions to them in other ways. And we see the, these things as low, like, oh, well, that means that this can't be, or that bit means that this can't be. Then we actually miss something about actually that's not a how God can work with God's power through all sorts of broken human beings, but also um, actually. Actually, I think we miss that. And then we miss it when it's reported to us or whatever, or we set up systems of power that keep people safe or and others not safe. You know, so we protect protect the powerful, the holy, the whatever. And and I think actually, no, this is the text giving us permission to say people are not these clear-cut caricatures that we see mm. a person is a monster and therefore they're only a monster. People are multifaceted people and that's how people are and that's the complexity yeah. of it actually the horrific complexity of it is that people aren't always monsters in an, in their entirety so they do something monstrous the heck does that then mean because we i think we like monstering other people because then it means that we can't be monsters um yeah. i think that that's my, that's my theory yeah and i think for me it's important you know we talk don't we about which, which particularly in the old testament but perhaps in the whole of scripture, you know, which bits are descriptive and which bits are pres prescriptive. I mean, mm. this is a description of something that has happened. This is not God saying this is okay. And I think for me, it's important to have the, the verse 27, even though that's not in this passage, but kind of in our mind when it says in verse 27, but the thing David had done has displeased the Lord. And I think we need we need to know that God, because this is in the Bible, this is not like, Oh, well, God kind of thought that was, okay. you know, God sort of yeah. thought that was okay. No, the text says the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I think that's quite important with some of these more difficult texts that we think, well, where is God? In, how did God feel about all of this? And I also want to, you know, I sort of look at it and I think how it contrasts, say, with Jesus and the woman at the well, where the woman at the well was also possibly in a slightly vulnerable situation as a woman on her own at the well with a Jewish man who then approached her and spoke to her. And yet Jesus never played the power card. Mm. He, he never took advantage of her vulnerability. And I think for me, it's quite important with some of these Old Testament passages that can make you go, so is that all God thinks of women, that it's okay for the king just to kind of summons her and, you know, abuse her and, you know strip her of her identity and just use all of his power against her it's like no and when jesus comes he he, he demonstrates that this is not okay and demonstrates mm -hmm. a different way and i think for me as a woman sometimes i have to be really careful to hold those those things in tension and to mm -hmm. know that this displeased the lord um mm -hmm. and, and to face I'm... it right on like you say um sam wells has a line that um uh the because the bible like especially the old testament is so honest about humanity we can trust it to be honest about who god is and i think that's really helpful like it's it's like so it's so accurate in its description we we recognize these situations and we you know we think even now these are ancient stories and we totally understand we totally understand how these figures happen and the way they interplay and the kind of different power structures going on and um and therefore we we trust it then to tell us a bit about the, who God might be in there yeah. too. And so actually this displeases God. We can take that as truth, you know, because we also see the truth of who, you know, the whole scenario of, 
of a bored David, you know, doing something awful and and behaving in a way that's totally inappropriate. Um, yeah. And I think for me, when I'm thinking about, so therefore, what does that look like to preach this in my community? I'm sort of thinking about this is, you know, it's a story of power. We haven't really gone into the whole Uriah thing, but, you know, Uriah is also a man of integrity. He won't go off and have sex with his wife while other people, you know, you know while, while the Ark of the Covenant is there, while people are, are fighting. You know, his integrity stands in such contrast with David, doesn't it? Um, so what does it mean for us to be thinking about how I use any power I've got within the community? Um, and am I humble enough from those to learn? Like I become somebody with power and influence within our community. And many of us as ministers, we are people of influence and power, whether or not we've we've chosen that that's who we become because of our roles and so for me it's like you know if David had just taken a little bit of Uriah's example you know so am I listening to those who perhaps haven't got a voice who actually have got an insight into God that I'm missing at that time or, or generally so I think there's something about humility here I think there's something as well even about us being church about whether we're we're using our power to make church what we want and just kind of like stamping out everyone who gets in our way well we want it to be like this so therefore it doesn't really matter about the Bathshebas of this world or the Uriahs of this world um so for me there is quite a lot here about the hope and then what does it mean to be rooted in love therefore mm -hmm. this is not a story rooted in love as you say this is rooted in power and greed and wanting our own way and mm -hmm. I think in my community I have to be really careful that I don't fall into any of those kind of traps um so that's sort of been a way in which i think i want to be laying down my power and influence um listening and paying attention to those who have no voice of power and challenging others who misuse power within the community and so that's part of the way in which i begin to embed that and kind of preach that out mm. Mm. so the gospel then um, oh. So we've got the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. And, and, um, and Jesus walking on water. Now, those who have been following the lectionary will know we've been jumping out from Mark to John to Mark to John. And it's really, I find that really unhelpful because I like sticking with one gospel and what it's trying to do narratively. But um, here we are, <laughs> jumping into John again. Um, so we, we've jumped to John and we've got this story of feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. Um, what would you yeah. where, would you use this how would you use this quite a visual story isn't it um both of them actually two stories quite visual stories yeah i mean these have been the whole narrative around the feeding of the five thousand has been really big for us mm -hmm. um, particularly throughout covid actually as a community um i mean even just noting the basic thing that probably everyone listen, listening to this knows already is that you know this is a story that is reported in all four gospels and i think that does say something deep about about the importance of this story and even though each story comes with its own gospel writers particular kind of interpretation and uh, you know way in which it's part of the overall story of their gospel i think it's really important to know that this is unusual for these for this story to be in every all of the gospel mm. narratives because we know that outside of you know of, of the, the passion of christ 
this is, I think, the only thing that is in all four Gospels. And so that, for me, makes me say, this feels a bit like a children's story, you know, something about Sunday school, but actually this is deep and significant and what is God telling us about it? And for us, there's been a real um, importance that has become more important during COVID about the importance of food but the, and of feeding people in our community. But there's also been a real accent on not doing this in a way that is functionally atheist and doing this in a way which is completely integrated with who we are and what we believe about God. So feeding people is good. Feeding people are hungry is good, whatever. That's great. But we're also called, I believe, as Christians to be doing that in a way that completely integrates in the practical and uh, the gift from God that is in all of that. And so it has been a lot very significant for us. And I think John's narrative brings out some very significant things. You know, the going up the mountain, being reminiscent of Moses beforehand, which then immediately for me brings to mind manna. And the, the manna narrative has been important to us here. But we we have almost no financial resources. Uh, we have very little. Everything, all the food that we're giving out to the community is stuff that's been donated from Christians and non-Christians in the area. And um, there's been something about God saying, "Don't store it. Out, don't store it back. You know, whatever you've got, give that out this week to who needs it, and I'll provide more." So we've already got something about that. I also think there's something here about the fact that particularly, I think, in John's gospel, they draw attention to the meagerness of the food. So it's barley loaves. Barley loaves were cheap as opposed to the wheat loaves, which are more expensive. We've got the word that John uses is dried fish rather than fresh fish. This is something that is is cheap and is meagre because they don't have a lot of resource. And that really resonates with me in our pioneering situation. You know, the, the, our, our team, our group, we're living by faith, we're volunteers, we, we, we do, I should acknowledge, have a small home mission grant, which helps, um, but that doesn't anything like cover things. So we're constantly depending on God to provide. And, you know, sometimes it feels small and meagre on a human level. And yet there is something here, this is not a functionally atheist story where they get given enough food to go around without any intervention of God. And so God here is intervening and taking this meagre amount and making it enough. And that has really been a narrative for us within this community and something that we share with those that we are sharing food with, not as invited and as it comes up in conversation, not arriving with food and a little sermon, <laughs> just knows what it sounds like in the way that I'm saying this. Um, but, I don't know, maybe it's a little story, but we were given, we have different foods obviously coming in. It's not like a food bank where we've got like, you know, a whole load of that stuff and a whole load of that stuff, but we just take one of each. So we've got a mixture of food and part of how we allocate the food is what will be a blessing to the people that, we, that we're giving to. And um, so one of the stories I just absolutely love is that when we have marmalade, but who who should we give this mark this one marmalade to out of all the different of all the different people and we gave it to someone and it turned out afterwards that they they messaged me and said thank you for the shopping that you delivered today the marmalade was great the kids have never had marmalade before and we were watching the Paddington story and they've never had marmalade sandwiches and afterwards we made some marmalade sandwiches 
that's a, such in some ways a trivial story. They didn't need marmalade to survive. And yet this is also about blessing. Mm. And I was able to say to that person, oh, that's amazing, because we only had one lot of marmalade and we prayed and we felt like you should have it. Um, and so it's beginning to embody this something of, yeah. of, of we, what we might have might be needed, but God somehow takes something as simple as a jar of marmalade, as simple as some dried fish and some barley loaves, and starts to go, actually, I can, I can multiply the blessing of that in all kinds of unexpected ways. And so that's been quite a kind of a, you know, a, a deep kind of part of that, really. I mean, there's so much in this passage, isn't there? I don't know if you want to interrupt me or if you want me to just keep no, cracking I need, I need that. I um, I, Yeah, like I want to say what else is in here, which I think is amazing. I love this passage. Um, and I, I think, I mean, Philip. So Philip's the local guy. Yes. So, so Jesus asks the local guy, you know, where, where can we get, you know, what are we going to do about this? And, um, and, and where are we going to fly bread? enough for people to eat and you can see him going <laughs> um and this is clearly this is poor you know so you're right you say this is this is a poor area and it's interesting it's, it's andrew who just kind of interrupts with this kind of like um practical idea well there's there's a boy here who's got um you know these this rubbishy food yeah so there's this, this poverty food it's, it's like tuna sandwiches isn't it with cheap cheap white bread is kind of probably the equivalent we could yeah. come up from this um and then um but i also think if you if Poor people don't give food back. So for there to be that many baskets left over, people will have shoved it into every possible pocket, every bag. They will have taken as much as they could have taken to feed their families then for the next few weeks or whatever, won't they? They won't have just given it back. You don't, because they will, this has just been given to them to survive off. They're not going to be like, yeah, here's loads of crumbs left over. They're going to be like, well, let's just, I forgot the, that's, that's the abundance of this. It's not just like a kind of, you know, I just think if you are hungry and you've got to keep your kids alive, you will have stashed it into every pocket and there's not a chance you are not taking armfuls of this home to your villages, home to everybody else you know. So that's that's the 12 baskets. There's 12 baskets plus literally all of the rest. Um, so I think that's one of the things I would kind of pick up from it. Um, yeah, and we found that as well, that people, we've encouraged people to say, take what's a blessing and if we're giving you stuff you don't like or whatever, just, well, you've got, you know, got too much to give it back and sometimes some of the joys of bringing food is oh that's great that you're bringing this but I've actually got three lots of rice now so take two lots and give it to somebody else who wants it and so we're not just like those who maybe have not got a huge amount mm. are sharing and we are finding that you know the baskets left over you know oh actually I've got quite a lot of tins of this and our family don't eat that very much and so we're sometimes we're both collecting in and giving out which is exactly yeah you know Twelve baskets yeah. left over, and the other thing is, I think that the fish and the bread return in John's gospel because we're just switching gospels. It's always a bit tricky, but um, there's a really important narrative point right at the end. Um, we meet on this sea of time, you know, this similar place. We turn up again and we eat fish and bread, but we eat fresh fish this time with Jesus in the resurrection story. Jesus makes them breakfast, and I think there's something about saying this is a story that we meet again and in a different way understanding Jesus in an entirely different light and I think um that kind of to be aware that this this there's a narrative thread there about eating bread and fish with Jesus by, by the sea um and I think that that's something that's kind of to note um as well uh I would I would bring that out and I think that's interesting because um 
there's obviously this line in the middle of Otherwise, they were about to come and take him by force to be king, and he withdrew to the mountain by himself. That, um, you know, contrast to David, contrast to, uh, you know, and kind of embodying Ephesians, really, is this idea that actually, you know, Jesus won't let them use him as this kind of messianic movement, this political upstart kind of figurehead, because they're poor and they're angry and they want change. He's not going to be the latest of their their leaders he's, he resists the power they want to give him and says no 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 i fed you but i don't want this i'm gonna hide away now for a while and it's such a contrast to the romans with their bread and circuses where they just thrown bread to placate the crowds and yeah that was part of their kind of whole approach of empire wasn't it and this was completely different like here's jesus feeding crowds feeding crowds but resisting power whereas the other people would have used bread to enforce their own power there's this kind of really different kind of um transition i think you know, this feels like a Marcus Rashford story. <laughs> like, you know, this is about, you know, Jesus wanting to enable, you know, kids to be fed and that kind of to be the starting place here. Um, and, and, sorry, sorry. No, no, you're good. I was just looking at my notes. <laughs> there's a bit, um, another of things that we live into is that we're about being an unconditional blessing. So that's part of what we preach into our community. And so there is something here about, where you are helping people, where we are food sharing and things like that, that is not done in order to gain power. It's not being done in order to become king. Um, it's been given unconditionally. It's not, well, we've done that for you now, so therefore now you're in, in debt to us in some kind of way or other. And I think that that's another way in which we have to, we have to embody, you know, that within our community, that it's, this is not about us being made king in any sort of way or by using this as a power trip um i think that whole thing about embodying unconditional blessing has been very kind of important to us and it's and interesting to... sorry go on no as jesus resists the power um the crowds sort of disappear off in john actually they mm. part away from him a bit here they're not so keen like yeah there, there is there is a bit of a you know you know they wanted him to be popular in their version of what they wanted they yeah. you know they actually he resists that then actually didn't get the popularism that came with, you know, and I think it's it's quite confusing for us as church to think, because we want the crowds in, right? We want to be, be where the crowds are. And I think actually this idea that that's not how Jesus works, seemingly, which is very confusing. Um, yeah. And there's a sense in which, um, I think I read this somewhere, now I can't remember where, but the sense in which if he had it, accepted that and become you know been made king as it were at that stage that would have foiled the rest of his mission because he was not there just to meet practical and physical needs mm. he had to wait in order to also um minister to their their the entirety of who they are including their their the spiritual part of their, their beings mm. um, and that is only fulfilled by him not being king, but going through with the entirety of God's mission for him on earth. And so I think there's something about us as well, thinking about what's the short term gain, like you say, of being the king, of having the crowds, of having the people. And actually, what's the whole mission of God that we're joining in with that might mean laying down these things, which to us feel like wins, <laughs> because God doesn't want the short term wins. He wants us to join in with the bigger yeah. picture. So I think there's. There's something there. And I feel like we can't finish without saying something about the kind of Eucharist, the use of the word Eucharistus in this, and the fact that in John, I think in the other three uh, Gospels, they just, um, 
they as it were say grace mm. and yet here they say thank you for the food but here uh you know they there's a sense of them them properly sort of giving thanks he uses the word eucharistos and what for me, there's something here, because especially because John doesn't talk about that at the Last Supper. John doesn't talk about kind of that being the Eucharist, the, you know, the breaking the bread and things there. And so for me, also, that gives a, allows me to kind of see communion and the breaking of bread in a much wider and more inclusive kind of a way. So rather than it just being with, with the 12 here, is eucharisting make that into a verb with this whole with this whole crowd and so what does that what does that kind of mean mm. when we're sharing food in our communities and things that don't doesn't necessarily look like traditional communion but can there still be something of eucharist in that and how are we sharing the eucharist in the communities as well as preaching the word oh i love that I really love that. I'm going to be stealing that one for my sermon on Sunday. <laughs> you feel free. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also the 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel, manna in the wilderness. Yeah. yeah. There's, there, I mean, there's so much. There's so much in this passage. There is, it's John and it's just full of symbolism. Um, yeah. I think we probably need to start thinking about wrapping it up and, um, and, and going on our way to go and bless our communities and you know write our sermons and uh, and think about what we need to think about to to make the world a better place but Ali it's been an absolute joy to have you on thank you so much um for all your thoughts and oh, thank you that you today. I really appreciate that um and thank you to everybody who's who's tuned in and is following it and um and and for those of you who found this really helpful we just love to encourage you to keep sharing it or liking it or reviewing it because it just helps keep it buoyant on the various platforms um and if you know of a friend that find it useful please pass us on um and and so also um let's go back into our um into our politics and into our pulpits with a blessing may we be anointed with god's spirit as we bring good news to the poor reclaim release to the captives help people to see the world truthfully and let the oppressed go free amen Amen. <laughs>